Again, we're not talking about, for example, facts about your whistleblowing program. You have received an allegation of type X. You're asking, is our program reasonably designed to detect and prevent corruption across the entire organization? Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Mike Hunnicky. Mike is a partner at Hughes Hubbard. And we are going to talk about a really interesting blog post that Mike put up on the FCPA blog a couple of weeks ago entitled, What is the General Counsel's Role in CEO and CCO Compliance Certification? So, Mike, first of all, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Longtime listener and occasional contributor. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. So, for listeners who may not know, Mike, could we start off with what is this new CCO certification policy that the Department of Justice, I guess we would say, has announced, but they've dribbled it out in various ways, shapes, and formats that we typically don't see? No, that's right. It was previewed in some conferences and some reporting. And then we've seen it now in part of the Glencore settlement, particularly the anti corruption related aspect of that settlement filed in the SDNY. And that settlement includes many things that practitioners and professionals in this space see all the time your statement of facts, your attachment C, compliance program requirements. But it also includes a new attachment H that is a certification to be made within 30 days of being released by the CEO and the CCO or chief compliance officer. And there are several elements to that. The first is that they are aware of the obligations under the settlement as to the compliance program, and that based on their review and understanding of their existing compliance program, the company has implemented an anti-corruption compliance program. That program meets the requirements of the agreement. Such compliance program is reasonably designed to detect and prevent violations not only of the FCPA, but of any applicable anti-corruption law, and to predict those violations and prevent them throughout the company's operations. They make this certification also with an acknowledgement that it's a material statement for the purpose of U.S. criminal false statement and criminal obstruction of justice laws. So let's start with the reason for this change. Do you have any thoughts or ideas or even just speculation as to why the DOJ made this change, and I guess we should say this is a change. It certainly is a change, Tom, and I'd be speculating as to why, to me, it seems to be part of a significant feeling of mistrust that the DOJ has about the adequacy of some companies' compliance with the terms of settlements. 
And also, I think it's consistent with this administration's many efforts to demonstrate increasing enforcement of white-collar crime and corporate crime, in particular in the context of anti-corruption enforcement and in deferred prosecution agreements. Generally, we've seen in the last year or so several breach determinations, which although had happened in the past, seem to be a lot of them happening at the same time. And then this is similarly indicating some mistrust. The companies always had to make representations to the government at the end of a settlement. Those were always important representations. But to put the CEO and CCO personally on the hook here, frankly, under threat of criminal prosecution, is a pretty significant step in showing that they don't feel they've had confidence in what they've been told in the past. Mike, if we step back and looked at this in terms of overall DOJ policy that has literally evolved, certainly since I came into this space in 2007 and towards the end of the first decade of this century, we had a significant number of monitors. There was pushback from companies and white-collar defense practitioners about instances of overreach or overcharging. I think the DOJ responded to that. Then we saw a period of experimentation by the DOJ, certainly 2016's pilot program, where they put into place many of the things that Rod Rosenstein, as the Deputy Attorney General, memorialized not in a new doctrine, but actually as a change in the federal enforcement policy around FCPA. It was described as a light touch, but nevertheless, it answered many criticisms from our side of the community that companies needed to know or have some certainty if they self-disclosed and if they met these burdens put on by the DOJ, they would what they would receive in return. And those questions were answered. Then we had, the, of course, the Benchkowski memo, which set a different standard for monitor ships. And now we have this, I don't know if we can call it the polite doctrine, but certainly the CCO certification. But in looking back, it seems to me the DOJ does evolve. They listen to criticism in the community, the dialogue by people like yourself who would sit across from them from time to time in enforcement actions and certainly conferences. So if we looked at it in that light, could this be viewed as a just uh, additional DOJ evolution in thinking and this evolution or this iteration of the evolution could change as well? Absolutely. Sometimes I wonder how unique we are in the anti-corruption space that we do have an evolving dialogue with the, our regulator that's gone on over decades. I remember as a baby lawyer having to describe what's new about the McNulty memo and how it's different than the Holder memo, you know, to take us a few decades back. And I think we should appreciate that the DOJ has that dialogue because it does help us and it helps compliance professionals internally to explain why something is important or what likely would happen, which is relevant to risk decisions that businesses make and management makes at companies. Here, there's been a lot of noise in the trade press for sure about this. I feel like it's been mostly criticism of it. I'm not necessarily taking a critical view of it. I think the DOJ probably has good reason for feeling the way they do and wanting to get something more. Again, that's just my speculating. I do think that, frankly, even as this particular settlement plays out and maybe gets close to ending in three years, it'll be interesting to see if there's any modification of this. And I do expect that the DOJ will listen as there's views expressed at conferences, as counsel and companies who are sitting across the table for them challenge maybe some aspects of what's being asked of them. 
you know, I do expect they will listen. They may tell us, yeah, we hear you, but too bad, which sometimes they do. All kinds of topics, and as is their right, but I do think they'll, they're open to it. And I should have actually added the 2012 FCPA Resource Guide, the 2022 update to the FCPA Resource Guide, the 2019 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, and the 2020 update to the evaluation. So you're absolutely right that we do have a dialogue with our regulator. And it, sometimes we may get what we want, sometimes perhaps less. Nevertheless, I see the importance in having that dialogue. Let me change the focus a little bit to the standard you articulated, which was, quote, reasonably designed to detect and prevent violations. I'd like to maybe explore what your thoughts are. Is this too vague? Is it adequate? And I would preface this that I'm a recovering tort defense lawyer. So every time I went to trial, the standard was reasonableness and the reasonable man. And so I'm very comfortable with that standard. I view it as, frankly, the lawyer's obligation to educate whoever the ultimate trier of fact is on what's reasonable, whether that be a judge, jury, here it may be the Department of Justice. But and I've told you my views. I sort of wonder what your views might be sure. on, on that phrase. It certainly sounds reasonable. They're not saying perfect in the standard or anything like that. And that's for every compliance professional with finite time and resources. I'm sure that at least that's appreciated. What struck me about this time is not that it's necessarily vague, you know, particularly for people like ourselves who deal with reasonableness every day, but in thinking about how I might myself make this certification if I was the CEO or CCO, it just raised a lot of questions for me. And I was in trouble, like, why is this difficult? And I think part of the difficulty is, could just be me, part of the difficulty I think though is also that reasonableness, while it rolls off our tongues, is really a construct of our legal system that was created hundreds of years ago to help judges, either judges or juries, decide retroactively whether what somebody else did, likely many years before, was good or not, or whether they should be fined or not, you know, in the tort setting, or whether, you know, that society should hold them responsible for failing to meet that standard. Certainly, if it, all that had to be happen was for the CEO to say, I think this is reasonable, and then that was the defense, this would just be kind of a tautology. This wouldn't really do anything. It would just be window dressing. So it's interesting to me to think about, in practice, if this is ever at issue, what's happened. There's been a resolution. Somebody's been released from that resolution based on these certifications, and then something happens later or something is discovered later. The prosecutors, who might be different than the prosecutors who monitor compliance with the agreement, are upset by this, and they make a decision, well, do we investigate or not, based on their own view, knowing what they know then, in the future, whether this was reasonable or not at the time it was made. And then they make a decision whether to prosecute, also making that decision. And then, worst case scenario for the people certifying, it's a jury, or if they waive a jury trial judge, deciding then whether what they actually did was reasonable, not whether they thought it was reasonable at the time. There's a disconnect there that troubles me a little bit. I think if this was a certification that was purely factual, and this is a bit of a kind of trite example, but do you certify that 95% of your sales personnel receive training? Well, that's not as objectionable, right? That's a fact. You can verify it at the time. It's easy to keep a record of that. There's not a whole lot of argument about that, hopefully. But here you're really asking someone to certify under threat of criminal prosecution as to a legal standard. 
And then that led me to think, well, who might they go to to ask for help to make that certification? That led to the really kind of then what ended up being the title of this article. Who are they going to go to? They're going to go probably first down the hall and talk to the general counsel. And that really brings me to the point that I appreciated from your article and your point of view in the article, which has gotten relatively little play in the commentariat. And that's the role of the general counsel in the certification process. And uh, first of all, kudos for looking at this angle. Like I said, I don't think it's been explored. But what do you see the role of the GC? You've told us you should go down the hall. Let's say you've brought two cups of coffee or perhaps even a pizza. (laughs) What's the conversation after you go into the GC's office? Hey, what do I do? (laughs) What What is this? What risk am I taking? What liability am I taking by signing this? And maybe could you help me? (laughs) Could you certify yourself as to the reasonableness? Now, whether that exactly plays out may depend on the relationship between the CCO and the general counsel within the company. And some companies, they're essentially parallel at this point. And other companies, the CCO is maybe dotted line reporting to the GC or somehow kind of out of the GC structure, but still more junior to them. And they may naturally look to something that is is common in the financial world. And as a result of Sarbanes-Oxley are these sub-certifications that the CEO or the CFO will ask the various people within the company to say, hey, if there's something that I need to know about, have you told me about it? And if not, tell me about it now. So, you know, you may ask for that, but then how is the certifier, the sub-certifier going to make that same determination? Again, we're not talking about for example, facts about your whistleblowing program. You have received an allegation of type X. You're asking, is our program reasonably designed to detect and prevent corruption across the entire organization? I have a colleague who's an internal auditor, and he maintains that after this certification requirement came out, that this will elevate the CCO as it did his profession after Sarbanes-Oxley. And you have just identified, I think, a key difference which is in Sarbanes-Oxley, when sub-certifications are required, it it is largely facts. So for me as a lawyer, when I had to sub-certify, I had to certify the contracts I worked on met the standards articulated by the legal department under our process and procedures. And then that rolled up to my boss, et cetera. But reasonableness, as you have pointed out several times now, is not a factual basis. So could we perhaps craft some facts that we could document to create a sub-certification and use that as an overall basis? Or do you feel like sub-certification just may not be the answer here because we've got a legal standard, not a factual standard? Well, I think that certainly there there will be a need to gather and present to the certifiers facts. I still think there will be a need, regardless of that, for them to get some legal advice about how to interpret those facts. I think it's also particularly interesting in the context like we have here, where there will be a compliance monitor. A natural first instinct might be, well, if the monitor says everything's okay, is that a fact that I can rely upon? That would seem like a very significant fact. But what if you learn something or someone else knows something that the monitor doesn't know or should have been told to the monitor that wasn't? You still might not be able to sign or certify at that point, and that creates all kinds of other issues. So I think you can obtain facts and think about facts that are relevant. You know, here are the objectives for rolling out the program. Have we done those? Here are the recommendations of the monitor when you have one. 
have we either adopted or adapted or responded to those? But at some point, someone's still going to need to make the legal call. And that brings up a question I had based on your article. Is the general counsel put in any conflict positions by either advising the CCO on liability issues, frankly, or advising on the reasonably designed program or delivering advice to the CEO, who also has to certify, recognizing that a GC's ultimate responsibility is to the shareholders, board of directors and shareholders of an organization. Does this perhaps put a GC in not simply a difficult position, but an actually a conflict position where he might want to bring in other counsel? I think so, Tom, very likely, particularly if the GC herself or himself is being asked to make a subcertification of some kind within CIMOD, if they would also then be able to advise on whether everything was okay for the purpose of making the ultimate certification. It's very conceivable that the CCO might have a different view than the CEO regarding what is reasonable. The company might have a different view, and I'm not quite sure how you define it at that point, if it's not the CEO or the CCO, but maybe the board has a different view. Maybe the audit committee has a different view on top of that. If you have a monitor, maybe they have a different view. It does create certainly the risk of conflicts and the need to think carefully about whether they are likely to exist or not. If you're in a company where you're very lucky and there's been a full transparency and everyone's singing from the same page and the facts are all aligned, and particularly if you have a monitor and those facts are all aligned, then maybe there's less of a risk of a real conflict arising out of this. But I think that there's a real risk that in large multinational companies where there have been historical problems, and maybe they're only three years removed from those problems, you're probably in an environment where you've had to triage, you've had to prioritize, you've been following the priorities of the monitor or the Department of Justice. Talking about what's reasonable and implemented across your entire organization, there may still be some disputes or disagreements about that. What I think would be a very unintended consequence of this would be that everyone needs to engage their own law firms, and then you have three or four or five different law firms or accounting firms or three or four different monitors all reviewing these in parallel, that would be total chaos. And I'm sure that's not what the DOJ wants. And that may be the type of thing that leads the DOJ to work with the defense bar and work with companies to maybe craft this in a way to avoid those types of problems. But it certainly empowers the chief compliance officer. And that's been a very public intent that the DOJ has shared that this is something that is to empower them. And absolutely it does, because they have the power to not certify and then throw the whole settlement and resolution into doubt, or at least the ability to get out of it and to successfully complete it into doubt. It's interesting because I don't think anyone was worried that the CEOs needed to be empowered and they're making the same certifications. But in the big, complicated companies with complicated structures, I think this is going to potentially raise some conflict issues. Certainly it's something, and as I previewed in my articles, people need to anticipate and think through what they might do in different scenarios. And at what point do they get to a point of place where, I'm sorry, I, the general counsel, can't advise you, chief compliance officer, on whether you need to make this certification or not. You raised a point that I, I want to follow up on, and that's the monitor, the role of the monitor, but not so much the role of the monitor to issue a report at the end. The times I've been involved in monitorships, there's been an annual report by the monitor to the Department of Justice or the regulatory agency involved. And it struck me that could you perhaps or could a CCO perhaps use those interim monitor reports 
as a basis to certify reasonableness. So if in year one, monitor said, I found these deficiencies, I made these recommendations. Year two, CCO says, we address these deficiencies. Here's what we did. And here's the next monitor report and kind of roll that up. In addition to the types of sub-certification we've been talking about, could the monitors work? Could the CCO perhaps use that? Not just to say that the monitors blessed it, but use that as a basis to demonstrate here are the steps we took and here's why I believe this is reasonably designed to detect and prevent. It's certainly very strong facts on which to base a reasonableness determination and presumably would be facts that the DOJ would think it would be reasonable for you to rely upon in making that. The interesting thing there to keep an eye on is that the monitor very clearly cannot advise the company and they cannot be giving the company legal advice. So the monitor could be a source of facts or a source of verification of facts for sure, but the monitor wouldn't be able to get you all the way across the line and say anything about the reasonableness of the program for your certification. Now, the monitor may still have to advise on the reasonableness of the program for the DOJ in its own report. If the monitor is reporting either at the interim reports or as in, in the preview to the final report at the end, that the program in the monitor's view is reasonably designed, that would be certainly a reasonable fact. But the CCO and the CEO would still have to make their own determination. And I think it's very common that you know the monitor has focused on things that are important to the monitor. And the monitor has asked the company questions about certain things, but there's probably other things the monitor hasn't reviewed in three years or maybe looked at two years ago, but not in the last six months. And maybe there's been something that's come up relevant to that. What this may do, and, and maybe this is part of the intent, is force the company to make sure it's disclosing to the monitor things like that. So you avoid a situation where the monitor said it's reasonable, but no one will sign the certification and the DOJ is asking why. Let's move into the lawyer world of hypotheticals. The general counsel of Tom Fox International Energy Company calls you, and we've just agreed to a deferred prosecution agreement, begins in 30 days, monitor's been selected, and we're going to have new counsel. At what point should a CCO in that hypothetical process start thinking about this certification requirement? At that point, near the end, or perhaps in between? Even before that point. If that's going to be part of the DPA and assuming the CCO has some visibility into the negotiations and how they're going, if the CCO has any opportunity before the resolution to make sure she or he's comfortable with it, they should look at it and make sure they are. But even then from day one, and frankly, it's also the best practice for dealing with monitors or dealing with interactions with the DOJ, they should be documenting what they need to be able to make that determination later. So. It's always so hard at the end of a re resolution period or settlement period to remember who knows what and where the files are and where the facts are that suddenly become relevant when the monitor's a few hours away from issuing their last report. And really the, the CCO and the CCO, frankly, should be looking from the very beginning at this, what am I gonna have to certify? What do I think I'm gonna need to get there? Who's going to help me make that determination? And what kind of record am I keeping of that? You know, particularly some C a CCO or CEO may retire in the middle of the settlement or soon after the signing of the settlement, but before the end of the monitorship period is very common. What kind of records are they leaving to their successor to allow them to reasonably make this determination? You know, the certification says there's been a review. So there has to be some kind of review. And 
I'm sure there, there could be endless debate about what would be that would be and how to do it, but there's got to be something that they're looking at. So I think the sooner you start thinking of it, the better. Mike, I'm not sure I believe that we could have had more questions coming out of this podcast than we went in with, but I think we have identified <laughs> so, more Tom. questions. And it's partly because it's brand new and it's an unexplored area, so we don't have the parameters about it. But I wanted to uh, congratulate and acknowledge you again for your blog post on the FCPA blog. We're going to link to that in our show notes for presenting us with uh, a little bit different focus and making or allowing CCOs to realize this. One, they're not alone. They may have corporate allies, but this is not simply a CCO determination, even though it may be a CCO certification, that there are other corporate resources that will need to be brought to bear. Mike, before we leave, in addition to your FCPA blog article we're going to link to, if anyone wanted more information on yourself, your practice, or Hughes Hubbard, what would be the best place for them to go? Well, we have a lot of information on our website, Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, Hubbard, all one word, dot com. And, and my name is Mike Hunneke, H-U-N-E-K-E. So very happy to talk to anyone if they have any questions or just want to chat more about these issues. I find them really interesting. And I'm sure we'll see evolution of this and dialogue about this with the DOJ in the years to come. Mike, thanks again. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Take care.